During the Vietnam War, every respectable artist in this country was against the war. It was like a laser beam. We were all aimed in the same direction. The power of this weapon turns out to be that of a custard pie dropped from a stepladder, six feet high. Kurt Vonnegut. Welcome to Write Good, the podcast that helps you write good. They say the pen is mightier than the sword, but it is way easier to kill a guy with a sword than with a pen. We love art, it's important to us, and it's meaningful and a worthwhile pursuit, but art alone does not change the material world. What, then, is the purpose of it? What is the purpose of writing? Why do we do this if we're not saving the world and we're not getting paid very well? Why are we doing this? So here to talk about this is poet Danielle Rose. Tell us about yourself. Thanks for coming on. Hi, it's uh, wonderful to be on. You, you wanted me to talk about myself. I, I'm, I'm notoriously bad at this. Um, oh, okay. I, I, oh, no, no. I I, um, <laughs> I try to stick with, with simple things. Like I, I guess people consider me a poet and uh, I, I tend to piss people off. And it, it might be a better better idea to get into what I've done, which is I, I think a much better way to, to, to understand a person. But um, yeah, yeah I, I write some poetry, I write some other things, and, and I really just think a lot. That's that's my, my biggest curse. <laughs> All right. Well, you said you, you tend to piss people off. So why don't we start with that? Uh, a while back, you, you pissed a lot of people off because you wrote a tweet saying, I wish poets understood that the general population has no interest in what we do, so when we speak, we are speaking to each other. The delusion that poetry is something powerful is a straight line to all kinds of po toxic positives that are really just us lying to ourselves. And people uh, people kind of went nuts over that. They did. Um, and... I guess, you know, sort of looking back, I, I don't think that it's it's very surprising to me that that was the end response to to that tweet. And it, 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 the funniest part is is really just how it was this, this offhand sort of. I was in a grumpy mood that day, and I um I just sort of threw it off before going into a, a, a standing appointment that I have every few weeks, and came out about half an hour later and, and just my phone was absolutely blowing up to the point that I, I really couldn't even follow what was going on for the most part. But yeah, the people, people went absolutely nuts. Poets went, uh, went, went really crazy over the, the suggestion that uh, what they're doing is, is, is toxically positive. Yeah. Like, I mean, to me, it, it seems truthful. The unfortunate reality is to the best of my knowledge, contemporary people, most con most regular everyday people don't really pay a lot of attention to poetry, at least not in the English-speaking world. I, I can't name many contemporary poets. I think most people probably can't. I, I, I'm, I'm not saying that's a good thing, but... No, I mean, I think that it's it's we, we get really hung up on the idea of whether things are, are are good or bad, and we don't spend a lot of time thinking about the fact that, that that's the way that things are, and that we have to 
address that question before we can, you know, do anything else about it. There's a whole working theory of how things happen with stuff like this. I think initially the the tweet came out of a, a moment where I had maybe seen dozens and dozens and dozens of, of poems that were shared on Twitter and, and on other social media. And everyone, all other poets, people who are already in the club, who are members of the choir that are being preached to, they all come back and they just say, they, this is so powerful. This is, is so, so incredible. It always ends up being some sort of a work that has a social justice bent to it. It's, it's identity poetry. And I think that this is, is true in other genres of, of writing and, and art in general as well right now, that there's there's this desire to assert the importance of the thing in, in place of the thing being important. Um, mm. And I, I think that's a, a big part of what I've uh, learned over the last seven months now since that, that, that tweet actually went out. Um, is how much assertion exists, not not just in the arts, but in, in social media in general. You step right. onto a site like Twitter and um, it, the, the material conditions of, of sitting down at a computer in front of your phone and typing some words out, you then send out to a whole bunch of people who, you know, follow you, who you know are interested in what you're doing and, and generally speaking, you, you can assume that they're going to agree with you in, in one way or another. It, it becomes incredibly easy to manipulate the world into being, or not not being, uh, it's, it's very important that it isn't being, but in, into, you can manipulate the world into appearing to be the way that you you want it to be. And I, I think that that's a lot of sort of what's, what's going on here is that you, you take a, an art form like poetry, which is, is not very popular. It's, it's incredibly insular. It's, it's generally controlled by a very small number of people at the pinnacle. And you get a whole bunch of people who have access to the internet. Anyone can sit down and, and write a poem. It's, it's one of the things that I like about about poetry is, is just how incredibly accessible it is. Mm-hmm. You don't really need a particularly specific skill set other than to have a desire to to communicate with other people and to be able to either write it down or memorize it or, or however you keep it in your head. And yeah, I, I think that it's a condition, the, the sort of condition of, of, of poetry in particular makes it very ripe for taking one's desires and, and fears and anxieties and to assert a world where, where those things are, are, are flattened and simplified. And so every poem ends up being powerful. It it's, mm-hmm. has a power that, that we're never going to, to really address or, or deal with in any sort of a concrete way. It's, it's just sort of this, the author said something and it resonated with me. And so it's powerful. And it, it's, we don't really think about what those vibrations are like or the mechanics of how we even get to that place. Yeah, I, I see. I see. And I, well, I think the thing that you said that struck me too, is I think it's pretty similar for short fiction, I think short fiction, which is what I write, is in a similar boat. And that a lot, of, I see a lot of short fiction writers saying, "I'm changing the world with this." And not many people really read short fiction anymore. And mainly, it's just other short fiction writers or aspiring writers. It's really rare for a short story to get really big. I think that's you know absolutely true. And I I was listening to a. a- a recent edition of this podcast talking about the idea of uh, every spec fiction writer, for the most part, genre fiction is aimed at film and, and, and television and screenwriting, really. It's a, that's 
correct, right? Um, I, if you ask them, they'll say no, but I, I think mm-hmm. you're you're right. Absolutely, I, I think a heck of a whole lot of the books and stories are written with with the primary goal of I want this to get adapted to the screen. And I, I think that that's something that, that makes a lot of sense, just from a purely mechanical standpoint. And go back to you know the Victorian era; you had people who were getting together to read poetry. Um, to read, you know, poetry that that oftentimes was in, in many ways very narrative, and it had a, a place within the, the culture where books were more accessible than going to the opera, than going, you know, out to see something, a performance or, or whatever it is. And so it, you know, the, the sort of drive of like, you know, someone who wanted to be a novelist or a poet, even looking back at this point, 120 odd years to very famous, at least in, in poetry circles, Rilke's uh, letters to a young poet and all the encouragement of the young artists to go out and, and, and do things because it, it, it matters. And I, I just don't really think that the written word, at least in, in, in terms of narrative, in terms of story, in terms of poetry, it doesn't exist in the same place that it did back then. Right. And, you know, the pinnacle of this is to get that Marvel-esque uh, multiverse <laughs> with 40 films and so on and so forth. And, and so it, it makes a lot of sense that the aim has shifted into that that era. Like, you know, if you really want to make ha- make something that is actually powerful, I mean, that that's how you're going to do that. And the capture of commerce and in service to a lot of political ideals that's going on right now is sort of, uh, you know, caused I'm sorry, I knocked my mic there. Um, but in, in service to uh, a lot of political ideas, it's sort of knocked off that ability of, of any real piece of art to be powerful outside of dictates of the, that are coming down from the metaculture and the economics involved. Yeah, I mean, I my feeling is if you don't have an audience, it's kind of unlikely that your thing's going to change the world. I, maybe that's cynical. I, I, I mean, a lesser known artist can influence other artists, but... If no one's reading poetry or if no, hardly anyone's reading short fiction, then I, I, I don't think it's realistic to go into it going like, I write because I think I'm going to change the world with my writing. Like how? No one's reading it. And, and then it becomes very mechanical. You can look in poetry right now and, and you, you can just see an incredible amount of sameness. And, and it sort mm-hmm. of goes back to what's going on in, in genre and spec fiction again, where this sort of wildly accessible range of what we have just just sort of keeps shrinking down into more and more restrictive, narrow genres of right speech and how we have, have shifted to defining these, these huge swaths of, of human experience and human ideas as just wrong to begin with. And it comes with this this absolutely massive blowback against it. And, and you, you can see the the more harmless side of that with my tweet suggesting that like, you know, right. well, these poets, 12 people are going to read this. They're also poets. They're going <laughs> to gush about it, but but no, no one else is going to come in and see this. And there are a handful of poets who have a, a kind of reach that goes outside of poetry. And, and it's not good numbers if you're, if you're looking to try to actually write something that, that's powerful, you're, you're not. And so it's, yeah. you just sort of fold yourself into the, the genres of speech and, and, uh, and I use the word genre, I just really mean a bundle of, of emotions and responses to those emotions. And mm. 
You can, for example, you know, I, I think a lot of identity work is sort of very narrowing genre where it, it sort of has this, this specific kind of emotional impact and that impact, it, it, it sort of railroads us into, into responses in, in, in various ways. And mm-hmm. to, uh, when, when you have things that are intensely personal that other people have decided that that matters to them as well, you end up in these, these sort of dump yards of, of emotion and affect where you just keep piling it on top until eventually it sort of falls. And, and I, I think that a lot of, uh, you know, short fiction and, and, and literature exists in that sort of a, a space now. I think I know what you mean. Yeah, there's a lot of writing about identity topics and things like that, but there's a very specific way that you're supposed to write about it. And I mean, I'm not saying there's obviously not like a law or anything, but if you write about it in a different way, you might have a harder time getting published or you just might have a harder time developing the kind of acclaim or buzz. I've definitely noticed it with friends who write about Latin American, they write Latin American speculative fiction and it it doesn't fit in with the sort of way you're supposed to quote unquote write that way. And it, it, it's good stuff, but it, they've have so much trouble getting it published or if it does get published, it's just, no one recognizes it. Even the, the crowd that like crows on and on about, Oh, we want diverse fiction. Like, well, not that kind of diverse fiction. Ew. <laughs> oh, okay. And it, it's, it's, it's trendy in its own kind of a way as well. I'm pretty sure that I have a career as a, as a poet and a writer right now, because I, I was able to coast the final sort of wave of, um, really trans literature being very, very popular and the it thing that mm-hmm. various institutions and, and stakeholders wanted to, to put out there. And it, it's to, to the point where you can, you, you sort of know who the pool of potential, say, contest winners are going to be uh, mm-hmm. before anything even gets announced. My first book of poetry uh, at first and then is a, a small little chapbook and it's it's identity poetry it's a little book about my transition and it's it's I, I think based on my own experiences just in in reading and, and experiencing other similar kinds of, of poetry it's a bit different it's a little more distant from the self than than a lot of that writing tends to tends to end up as but even so I, I stopped writing sort of personal identity focused poems a long time ago, uh, a few years ago, um, just because it was, it felt very exploitative. It felt like I had to sort of open myself up and share these very private things about myself in order to continue this hype train that I was on and, and, and to keep getting the publications that I wanted to and to continue to to advance my career in a lot of ways. And there, there's been a, a very distinct change. I still do plenty well for myself I is certainly not a not a complaint but it's much harder these days now that I'm I'm writing what oftentimes amounts to domestic wit for me to have things accepted out of slush piles and and, Mm. and things of that sort yeah 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 I know what you mean uh, to a certain extent about that weird feeling of advertising yourself as this is my identity this commodification of the self for the personal identity I mean there's absolutely I've obviously nothing wrong about saying here's what I am or talking about this stuff like that. That's cool. But there's something that feels kind of weird and crass about it or something in ways that's hard to articulate. I mean, it, it, it's the way that it sort of hooks into these processes, I think, of sort of effective emotion and how 
that there's been so much politics that have been packed into literature of recent and, and everything ends up it's sort of this first pass is is sort of you know does, does it pass the is this bad or not is, is this harmful or not is this is this mm-hmm. something that that this person needs to be canceled for or not um do, do people talk about harm in poetry the idea too I, I i was wondering like is that limited to my little neck of the woods i'm oh, terribly no. curious because i know oh. nothing about that whole culture i know nothing about poetry i'm sorry <laughs> I, I think it's actually very similar. It's it's the mechanics of how it all works is very, very similar. It's another sort of niche genre that is populated by people who are, are, are really dedicated to it, in part because it is a niche genre. It, it allows people so easily to be big fish in small ponds. Mm-hmm. And there's a, a kind of uh, danger that's inherent there because the big fish in the small pond is not very rarely the actual big fish. They're just the the puffer that's managed to, to blow themselves up to that that extent. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I know what you mean. I, yeah, but I mean you've got the the issue of trying to supposedly change the world with your work when you're writing for a very niche audience. But I would also kind of suggest that even if you do get that big audience, that doesn't necessarily mean you're gonna you're gonna make a huge difference probably the biggest thing right now superhero movies they're huge they couldn't even inspire us to wear a mask to the grocery store half the time to prevent the spread of covid so that's the biggest thing that's that's there right now masked superheroes and you could not even get a a huge percentage of americans to like wear a fucking mask which makes me a little bit more cynical like if the the biggest media franchise has such limited power, you know, what is my story that is going to be read by 50 people going to do? I, mean, I, I think that art has subtle power. And for, if we want to talk about Marvel films, it, it has a lot more to do with how they present the world and, and the sort of conflicts that mm-hmm. they, they put forth. And I, I, I don't think that it's it's very easy to, you know, make, say, a superhero film and for people in our day and age to all come out saying like, like, okay, well, this is clearly a metaphor for this. And it's the way that there are people who unironically watch Apocalypse Now as a, you know, rah-rah war film. You're not going to be able to affect people on the, on the base level. But what you can do is you can condition them to sort of fall into different genres of, of, of thinking and to narrow and and open themselves in those genres um in in how they communicate and how they conceive of their communication with other people if if, if that sort of makes sense as a as a starting point for this yeah i i think so i think that makes sense so in terms of say art changing the world say portraying morally correct actions in a work of art isn't necessarily going to make people enact those morally correct actions, but you're at least maybe contributing to a wider conversation. You're contributing to a wider conversation and you're, you're engaging with, with how people respond to things. And it's the way that, you know, the way that Captain America is portrayed can affect our ideas of patriotism and nationalism and, and, and things like that. And oftentimes it, it has the effect of, of, reinforcing one's own worldview going back to apocalypse now i mean the uh, the the person who goes into that seeing it as the raw raw pro-war story um you know that that they're not going to be it's very unlikely that that is going to change because that's a a part of the way that they interact with the world and it's it's they 
hear a uh, flight of the Valkyries and, and see the helicopters swarming in, drop a napalm and, and it's hoorah and, you know, that's a good thing and, and, and so forth. And it gives them that, that sort of dopamine hit of, of emotion and then everything follows after that. And you go into the next the next experience and the next, you know, thing that you, you take in already sort of railroaded into that into that idea and so the next and and even when you get jarred out of it it's still a matter of of trying to take take your worldview and your selfhood and and sort of stuff it back in there and say like like no this this still makes sense i'm going to keep going Mm. you're not going to have a a marvel film that that convinces people to wear masks but if we have enough marvel films it's sort of uh, can, can do the work of, of normalizing the way that we talk about things. It, it's certainly, I think a lot of art has normalized the way that we talk about things like like race and gender and marginalized characters, but also marginalization itself. And it, it creates a, it creates sort of a genre ways of, of discussing this and, and they are easily, categorized as as good or bad depending upon where you're sitting Mm. that can make sense yeah that that makes sense but at the same time um i'm glad you brought up marginalization and identity because i i feel like there's this belief that if you present positive representation of marginalized identity in media like that's enough and I'm just thinking about this right now, how we have a lot of uh, positive representation of LGBTQ individuals in media while we're getting these like really kind of disturbing anti-LGBT legislation that's popping up uh, in, in places like Tennessee and places like Texas. So I, I, feel like, I feel like occasionally people might focus on representation and the culture war too much and lose track of the other things. Like, I I think it's good to have diverse and positive representation in media, but that's not enough. And that's the thing we're talking about more, which I find a little bit alarming. I I think that one of the few freedoms that we we have and one of the few places where there's agency to be grasped, at least easily on a day-to-day basis, is in a a concept of, um, Lauren Berlant calls it, lateral agency and it's 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 not actually going out there and and accomplishing something it's 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 not that a piece of art change the world or be powerful or or get someone to put on a mask or or whatever sort of outcome you're looking for but it, just that it, it it provides us with just sort of a moment of rest and you, you go into the the marvel film and you know you watch the good guys win and Ultimately, the moral story is very simple. Everything else is just sort of window dressing to it, you know, and and there's the big, huge climax battle and it's violent, but not too violent. And just sort of enjoy yourself for a little while. You get, you know, an hour and a half, two hours of, of not worrying about everything else, not not worrying about how you're perceived, not worrying about all of the attacks on rights or, or whatever one might perceive these things to be. It, it just sort of gives us a moment to rest and to recuperate. And I, I think that there's a lot to be said as well. Um, and, and this might be sort of moving backwards a little bit, but I, I think it's worth it to point out that, that there's moving into this sort of age of post-scarcity. This is, is very much the, the case for television and film and, and the popular arts. Music is a great example. Um, 
it's it's there. It's accessible. It's it's all you're not kept away from it. And in fact, these companies, for the most part, they want you to just like keep going and going and binging. And you listen to one album, you you listen to a different playlist. Like it just sort of keeps the algorithm throw stuff at you constantly, and you you can never stop. It's sort of the YouTube problem, but mm-hmm. it's sort of the problem everywhere. And there are very sort of different rules. You go back to, you know, sort of the, a lot of the work with Foucault and the, the linguistic turn, the, the idea that um, a lot of the ideas surrounding repression and in many in many ways, I, I think I'd posit that our, our world right now, having something be, I don't want to say repressed because that's a, a very sort of active process, but to to not be the center of attention is an incredible, incredible thing. And it, it might be the space where the most amount of self-making can actually occur. It might be the place where identity is something that is calmer and, and, and simpler. There, there's the sort of example of anti-LGBTQ legislation. And if we're being honest, a lot of that is is really, it's, it's anti-trans legislation. Right. And the, the stuff is, is complicated, but it's, it goes down to, you know, at least uh, in, in terms of trans people like myself who are who, who medically transition, who go through this process, we are a tiny, tiny, tiny percentage of the population. I think the upper reaches of that is something like like 0.7%. Um, and, you know, a lot of the time, you know, you, you step out into our, into our world right now. And, and that doesn't really seem true <laughs> just right. in, in how people talk about things and in sort of the attention that's paid and, and stuff like that. And so there's, there's this, this nagging suspicion that, that I have that a part of what's going on here is this sort of asynchronous communication between sort of political sides and in what you call the culture war that is both of them are are, are playing to their genre and they're on their tracks and they've sort of had their their series of emotional impacts and now things are just sort of on rails they're going to try to do something about it and there's a wonder about okay so now we're seeing you can, you can look the, the, the woman who promised like 50% queer characters and in Disney films going forward is the goal. And it's, it's a little bit of a head scratcher considering that the actual population numbers are, are a lot smaller and it makes something seem much larger than it is. And when something is, is sort of portrayed as so large, it becomes much more of a threat. I think it's it's very very interesting the way that the conversation about trans rights that's that's gone since the quote unquote transgender tripping tipping point um, tripping point it was that as well um, but the transgender tipping point about you know a little over a decade ago where it sort of went from these these very hard fought and won protections and 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 openness about trans people has become something that is is incredibly different at this point it's a different population of people and and the needs of of individuals under that sort of larger umbrella are oftentimes actually mutually exclusive and it it sort of ends up with these these sort of inherent conflicts that need to be smoothed over constantly 
how, how do you mean the the needs are mutually exclusive? Could you tell me about that? I mean, I, I think that there are a lot of trans people for whom invisibility is the you know, the, the greatest hope. I, I, I can speak for myself that my, my life is the best when being trans is, is something that's, that's sort of off to the side and, and that, you know, affects my life in, in some deep, deep ways. But, you know, at the same time, it's it, it's not the center of, of who I am when I step out into the world. And, and on, on a practical case, like it's the idea of being involved in, in like, say a pronoun circle, like, like mm-hmm. someone asking me what my pronouns are, like, like, no, like, like I fought really hard for you to not ask me that question. Like mm-hmm. for me to just be able to, to move through life like anyone else and the constant placing a spotlight on something for the sake of placing a spotlight on it. And oftentimes for very performative reasons getting those little little points mm. it can be it can be a little difficult the extent of what i need as a trans woman is is access to my medications and and that's something that's it, it's not really it's very difficult to get between an adult and their doctor but the, that's what a lot of these laws are doing is right. that they are, are getting between people and their doctors and and which which is a, a ludicrous kind of um oh an absolute violation of of just bodily autonomy medical privacy everything it's ridiculous yeah i mean the state has no there's no purpose there no they're, they're, they're not doctors they don't uh, legislators don't understand this and no. um, but that, that's sort of where things are are, are headed is this is sort of like over legislation of everything and this is coming from both sides of the political spectrum as well it's not it's not just the anti lgbtq stuff it's 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 the it's the pro as well i mean it's it's everything is sort of ending up in this 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 arena that works in this particular way now how how do you mean that it's coming from like the the more leftward side can you elaborate on that a little bit it's just the the oversized emphasis on a lot of this Mm -hmm. You, you take trans people who on a day-to-day basis, I I don't come across other trans people. I, I can go months and months and months without encountering one. And, and part of that is that I'm more of a suburban, rural type of person. So I, I encounter less people on a day-to-day than, than if I lived in the middle of a city. But right. um, even so, it, it's, it's, it's just not, I'm the only trans person where I go almost all the time. And as a result, it, it's just, it, it's not a problem. I, I, I don't have problems. I, I, I just sort of exist as I, as I am and, and go forward with that. And, and it's, yeah, it, it's, you have to sort of get in the mind of, of some of these conservatives who have these very fear-based mentalities about things. And they, they log on to someplace like Twitter and there are hundreds or, or thousands of you know, people all coming together, all excessively able to lend their utterance, which is, you know, the same as, as what other people are saying. It's the same thing over again. Mm. And it, it just sort of creates the, the this idea that this problem, quote unquote, from the mind of, of the person who's sort of anti-trans, that this problem is huge and it's everywhere instead of... Um, was it the the state recently where the Republican governor vetoed the anti-trans bill, pointing out that it would affect like three people? 
<laughs> right. Which is, it's, it's ridiculous. It's, it should be a case by case. And that's, that's about how, how far it goes. And, <laughs> but there, there's this need to sort of push things to the edges. And in our, in our definitions, we want to expand them as much as we can. And that causes a certain kind of problem. And it, it, it's also goes, you know, to the other side that your, your sort of political enemy is going to, is going to see a much larger army to, to, keep with the enemy than if they were existing in their neighborhood and their daily life and their workplace and, and so forth. Okay. I, I think I see what you mean. Yeah. All right. And it's, it's the popular thing. But it's, yeah. These things go in, in, in cycles and five years from now, it'll be a sort of a different group that has captured all of the, the, the sort of attention here and the, the focus of the, the political side of things. Why do you think that when we write a poem or a short story, we do this telling ourselves, I'm going to change the world with this? Like, why do you think that's such a widespread thing that people say about themselves? This is powerful. This is powerful. Like, why, why, why do we feel the need to tell ourselves this? I don't think that we have any other kind of currency. And I think that the currency is so devalued that we can just sort of throw it around. It's like that guy who, and this is all a performance, like everything is a performance. But when the ruble was so devalued during the, you know, the, the, the recent invasion, I just went out in the street and started throwing it around because it, it isn't really worth anything. Like bill after bill after bill, just like going through the air, ending up on the ground, and some people scrounge for it, other people just step right on it because it's, it's not really worth anything. And there's nothing, there, there's no stake in it. If you say something is incredibly powerful, but it isn't, but nobody cares really, then right. you, you've sort of asserted that it's powerful. And then if the people who you're talking to agree with you, then, then, you know, that thing is powerful. And it creates this, this de facto reason for doing the things that we do from from taking that labor that could be doing something much more practical for us you know is it's you know even as as much as earning a wage to get a little bit of extra money that you can actually use and has value in one way or another and yeah i i mean i i just think that when when things have no when when, when things have no power then you can say anything that you want and there's so much of that. There's just so much that you can say whatever you want, and it's not. It doesn't really matter. I I can say that flying monkeys are the the real geniuses of the world, and it doesn't matter that flying monkeys don't actually exist. It just, you know, I I can make that assertion, and if I can convince other people that that's true, then I've created a feedback loop for myself where I can I can like really get into flying monkeys because flying monkeys are important and it gets a 
lost in the jumble of everything. And that's where most people are just sort of lost in the jumble. And it, it, it carves out this little space where you have this sort of lateral agency to justify what you do by bouncing it off other people. If that, if I that think, makes sense. yeah, I think I can yeah. get that. Mm-hmm. So you're, so you're having a great time pretending that flying monkeys are great until someone comes along and says, you know what? Flying monkeys are bullshit. They're not real. And I don't even think monkeys should be able to fly anyway. Canceled. I, I, why would I want a monkey to fly? It just means they're going to like fling poop even further. It's terrible. It's a terrible idea. And, and I've heard that flying monkeys work for evil witches. Oh, yeah. Terrible. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And then you have your Sorry, you don't like a girl boss? Excuse me. <laughs> you know, the, the the whole mythology just sort of grows up around that. And then you have a mythology in, in, in poetry. These very minor figures are hailed as being incredible and life-changing. And if you read this person's work, like, it'll change how you think about things. And we, we don't really explore that very much. Like, what does that even mean? Right. Like, like, are you actually changing or is it just reinforcing the things that you want to believe that are true? You know, are, are these statements that are, are reason that make sense rhetorically? I, I think one of my pet peeves is that poets are horrific critical thinkers i i i there's a reason that most poets don't make arguments they make statements and assertions and and i I think the word assertion to assert is is very important it's it's a a major part of how our, our culture works right now is that we make assertions and then the existence of those abstract assertions in the abstract realm of performative social media actually makes those associ- those those assertions into a kind of relativistic truth. Mm. Okay, yeah, I can see that. I can see that. And when you start to break at someone's truth, they don't they don't really have an argument against it and all they can do is just sort of declare that you're a bad person. It, yeah, yeah, and then that's it's, it's sort of a playbook, and it's it's the, yeah. that's also sort of the, this idea of right speech. It's right. you call people out for the things that are, even if it doesn't actually affect you. And it, it, it's I, I always find it uh, amusing coming from leftists because it's it, it's this very Bush era post nine eleven like like if you see something, say something. <laughs> it's it's this sort of internalization of of that idea without having the understanding that that's where it came from, that seeing those posters over and over again in the subway, on TV, when you go into the airport, still at this point, it's, you know, really been, I I think Orwell would have quite a complicated field day with today. And it's, it's, uh, I I guess it's a bit of a, a pet peeve for me when sort of either side of the political spectrum tries to to claim him because we are in an age that that is is much more authoritarian than it is democratic to the extent that you can you can see articles about the end of democracy all over the place right now didn't norwell snitch too though didn't he also see something and say something oh probably i'm pretty I mean, sure he was a snitch that's, that's just survival <laughs> i mean you know if, if you do what you have to do, which is, you know, you call that hustle. But if you do that in the way that people don't like, then, you know, then that becomes a problem. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm looking it up. Yeah, he totally was a snitch. Yeah, yeah. So he's also a complicated guy, I guess. 
Right. Where, where were we? Okay. So what about this? Um, very frequently when a dictator or, or totalitarian uh, authority seizes power, there's a huge clampdown on free speech and that includes art, right? Like dictators tend to go after artists. They tend to imprison artists, kill them, really limit the kind of art that's able to be made. So a question is, well, if art has such really limited power, then like, why is a dictator so scared of it? I don't know if dictators are actually scared of art or they're scared of, of artists who or, or organizers and activists and in many cases, revolutionaries who happen to be artists. I think that you'd be hard pressed to find people who, you know, examples exist because examples in, in today's post-scarcity of information age, you can find an example for everything, but it doesn't mean that it isn't a an outlier. It's, it, you'd be sort of hard pressed to find someone who's simply imprisoned for writing a poem. They're imprisoned because of their associations with other people, not that that's a, an okay thing, but the, the justification is not, and the, the threat apparently is, it's not something that comes from the art. It's something that comes from the person and their actual actions. It's, they went to, they went to the protest and they, arrested a lot of people from the protest and, and some of them were artists and they did a crackdown and it swept up a lot of artists because a lot of artists were deeply involved in various political organizations with political affiliations and oftentimes that they're very open about and they speak about if not on a propaganda level on on, on just a, a sort of awareness level i i, I was I'm actually very interested in, in, in this question right now because we have a, a sort of fascinatingly inept example that's going on with uh, Orban in, um, in, in Hungary right now, where there is this, this huge effort, and it, it's very inept, it, it's not going very well, to promote right-wing art. And part of my interest in this is that it's, it's really funny, but... It looks in, in a lot of ways, and it, the way that it sort of works is very reminiscent of earlier Soviet art, the sort of an, an installing political appointees into national museums and, and, and things of that sort, and then just sort of getting these very boring, like almost memefied political pieces of art that are oftentimes not very good and also giving space to less and less in a, in a minimized way, but also giving space to left-wing art and leaning on, on left-wing art to sort of keep things moving so that they can show people right-wing art. Mm -hmm. But it's, it's very, it's incredibly similar to the idea that the Soviets had that, that art should be politically approved and that it should, uh, it should push forward the, the Marxist-Leninist way of life and, and, and things of that sort. And it's just, it, it doesn't really work because art doesn't really work that way. Art that, that has a political impact is, is used by political people as a tool to make an impact. It's, it's, it's not presented as art 
engaged in as art, it, it's engaged in as propaganda. Mm. You read a poem at a at a political event, and it's it's propaganda, and it, it it's meant to advance the political that's being put forth by that particular group. I see. I see. I'm also thinking of instances of works of art that, for better or for worse, legitimately did at least appear, to my eyes, to have significant political impact. One would be that film, uh, D.W. Griffith's The Birth of a Nation, mm -hmm. which, I mean, it's a, a film that had a very clear, I think, in many ways, um, political and, and social impact. It helped, was a big part of reviving the KKK in the United States, mm -hmm. like... It's hard. Oh, it's hard to say. Oh, how art isn't going to change the world. Art, art isn't going to do stuff like that. And then, meanwhile, you get this movie that comes out, and unfortunately, gets very, very popular with this these really, really odious um, racial beliefs uh, it promotes. And then suddenly, you got people wearing conical hoods again. Like how? I mean, would it? Is it overly simplified? to say like the movie did this or sorry like is it just the movie you know like is it just the work of art or or do you think that if it hadn't become such a big movie things might have been different i mean how much can we blame on just the social situation that was brewing in the united states at that time and how much can we point to that movie itself like how much responsibility do do we assign to it I, I i like to make a you know a very stark uh differentiation between sort of pre and post internet in mm -hmm. terms of art and and culture in general because nothing has changed the way that we interact with each other and the way that our society functions more than the internet and you look at an example like birth of a nation or mein kampf um and, and mein kampf isn't interesting example because Mein Kampf would, would probably be more analogous to memoir and personal writing, which is actually very, very popular right now. But to even if, if Mein Kampf was, was written today, it would probably be written as a self-help book, to be honest. It would be some sort of new agey, like, I think sort of the, the, the neo-reactionaries have, have done something similar. I'm not, not calling them Nazis, but I've, uh, to a degree, taken up that sort of a model with things yeah, and, and yeah. sort of getting back to birth of a nation. It's, this was at a time early in the birth of film where, where suddenly things were possible that, that weren't really possible in, an, in a semi-accessible kind of a way. You know, you could go to the theater and you could see this film. You, you know, might even live in a place where someone got a, an actual copy of the reel and they can put it up against a barn every Friday night and people, people would go and see the same, the same film over and over and over again, because you can't get on Netflix and binge on, on 16 different things and, and, and still have count countless other options of, of, of things to keep watching for the rest of your life. Probably. <laughs> I, I think that maybe you can look at Atlas Shrugged and, and Ayn Rand as maybe the closest example. But even then, I might even bring up like Jordan Peterson, who writes self-help books and is a self-help guy. <laughs> it's, uh, it's, you'll sort of find in the, in the popular 
genres, examples of exactly this. And it's, it goes the other direction as well. The, you know, 1619 project, there are bunches of other books that I'm, I'm probably not aware of that are stables right now that are, are just, it's, they're not poems, they're not short fictions, but best sort of poems and short fictions take stuff from that and try to make it in an individualized or an artistic kind of a way. But it's 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 not the thing itself. Getting back to to Atlas Shrugged, Ayn Rand, I, I I think that that might be the closest thing to art sort of having a, this sort of political effect that can be very tangible for people. It absolutely does because like mm-hmm. at least half of people who read it in freshman year of college turn into an absolute dildo for an entire year. Huh. It's magic. It's amazing. Yeah. Yeah, I I don't know how much I I necessarily agree with that um, <laughs> with that assessment, but I, I think that it's it's sort of worthwhile to remember that Atlas Shrugged is propaganda. It's it's it sort of puts together a manifesto and makes a whole lot of assertions about how someone should live their life. It, it gives someone a, a, a roadmap, and I, I think in the the age where we want quick beauty hacks and ways to change the kitty litter to save ourselves two minutes and everything like that it's it's things like that are are they're more appealing than we think mm-hmm. when they're sort of couched in this language of of self-help and and something like like atlas shrugged is very sort of the the, the rugged individualism that that exists in something like that is is right. very similar to the jordan peterson ideas and a little bit sort of joe rogan and on podcasts and, and things like that. I mean, it's, there's a reason why we're on a podcast right now and, and, you know, that you're not writing a, an, an article for a weekly paper, right? <laughs> and, you know, Newsies is a cult classic in part because it looks back on this age in this romantic kind of a way and, and makes us feel a little bit better about a time that was very, very brutal. <laughs> right. Right. Okay. So, so winding down a little bit, let's talk about, you touched on it earlier, but the actual power of art, writing a poem is unlikely to end, to end poverty on its own. Art that we make has sort of limited power and a lot of the power depends on circumstances outside of the art and what we do in real life. Like, are we, are we doing actual activism or are we making art as a substitute for like going outside and doing the actual work. So what then is the power of art really? And, and why should we, why should we do this as opposed to getting a side gig that like pays way better or something? Yeah. I mean, I, I think that's the eternal question and it, it's, it's not a lot of artists go through, but art is, is, uh, I, I believe very, very firmly that, that art, and especially a genre like, uh, a discipline, like, like poetry and short fiction and, and the literary side of things, it's very much an, an intellectual engagement. It, it's an intellectual process. And to, to me, at least it's, it's an opportunity to, sort of make experiments and to poke and prod at things and to, and to see how things can move in small ways. There's also, if you want to talk about a lot of overtly political art, it does exist as a record and as, as a primary or secondary document. While the poem about an assault is not going to do anything about the assault, 
it, it is creating a record of these things. And it's something that in however many years, we will be able to have scholars look back and say, well, well people were writing about this, this was what they were, what, what was important to them. And I, I think that it will give a, an idea, um, oftentimes a, a sort of a humanization of some of these political ideas. You know, a lot of poetry that comes out of extremity and situations of persecution, it's not going to help with that in the, in the short run, really. Although it can maybe give a sort of a personal catharsis to an experience, but I... I'm I'm uncertain about that ultimately, but um, I didn't I I I, uh, I I agree with Anne Carson that art is not therapy. It's not going to fix you. It's not going to fix the world. But best it can sort of give us this this lateral agency, this moment to sort of catch our breath and recharge a little bit, and not be overwhelmed by the the, the crises that are constantly pushing against us in an ever connected always on world. It's that moment where your boss isn't sending you the, the, the 8 p.m. email expecting you to sit down and do 45 minutes of work. And it's a space where you're not worrying about your retirement account. You're not concerned about inflation. You're not in a place where you're worrying about getting the kids off to school the next day and, and making sure that they have the right lunches and things like that. It, it sort of gives us a moment to catch our breath. And it, it, it sounds very unromantic and, and simplistic, but I, I think that it's probably one of, one of the things that we get the least amount of in 2022. Yeah, I can see that. All right. We've been talking for about an hour, so let's start winding down. Any final thoughts, questions, or comments? Oh, gosh, I've said a lot. <laughs> Probably too much. <laughs> so no, that's fine. Perfect. Okay, before we go, where can our listeners find your work? My uh, debut chapbook, At First and Then, is available directly from the publisher, Black Lawrence Press. Um, it is available on Amazon. And on a small press distribution, those are the best places to get it. And my small, uh, technically this is a fiction. It's, I think that it's, I've come to categorize it as a, probably a, a short story in microprose. The History of Mountains mm. is available directly from the publisher Variant Literature. All right, great. We will put links to that at the bottom of the show notes so that the listeners can check it out. All right. Fantastic. <laughs> okay. Well, thank you very much for coming on and taking the time to talk to us. Oh, it was my pleasure. This was, I, I certainly went on and on for a while. So I, I hope some of it is, is, uh, <laughs> is, is useful for your listeners. Yeah, absolutely. I hope someone can do something and find some power in there. Great. <laughs> find some power. This podcast is going to change the world. It's going to end. It, this podcast in particular is going to end global warming. That's it. You said it, not me. Yeah, that's it. I'm, I'm pretty confident. I feel pretty good about it. Okay. Well, that is all for this episode. If you like what you heard, head to patreon.com slash write good and subscribe. Until next time, keep writing good. This has been Write Good with Raquel S. Benedict. Hosted by Raquel S. Benedict and produced by Matt Keeley for KS Media LLC. Theme song by Surgery Head. This has been a Kitty Sneezes production. For comments and concerns, please write to us at writegood at kittysneezes.com. That is R-I-T-E-G-U-D at kittysneezes.com. 
If you'd like to support us, please visit our Patreon at patreon.com slash writegood. Kittysneezes.com in color. <laughs>